So if you take your Bibles, please, we'd like to go to John chapter 17. This has always been a most special passage to me. There's been whole books written on John 17. And I'm not going to preach the whole matter of John 17. As a matter of fact, if if people wrote whole books on it, you, you can hardly preach one sermon about this. But one book in particular, I loved its title. It said, The Night When God Prayed. And when the Son of God and His Father discussed things, as the Son poured out His heart to His Heavenly Father about the whole master plan and how He had fulfilled those things and what would happen after that, uh, this is a most sacred moment. We're not going to read it all, and that's going to be hard for me, but we're going to start with John 17, verse 1, and read to verse 20. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. And they have kept thy word. And they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, But these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee. And these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And again, I painfully stop. I'd like to finish the rest, but the matter at hand has been encompassed by these 20 verses over and over. Jesus says, I gave them your word. I 
gave them your name. I revealed you to them. And what a wonderful statement there in verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This word is not mere doctrine or procedure or form, ritual or laws and commandments. This is a life-giving word that produces faith. We'll get to Romans 10, 17 later. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This was a life-giving faith. This was a living word, a word that is alive because it was embodied in the very person himself, Jesus Christ. And he caused people to know the Father. And he had said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And uh, on another hand, no man has seen the Father, he said, except me. So we have the embodiment of who the Father is. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he came in a form that men could see and, and hear and, and handle. They could literally touch the word of life. 1 John 1 describes that. And because of that, there's a fellowship, a partnership developing. First with the apostles, and then with those who shall hear him, hear them later. He says, I pray not for these alone, but also for those who shall believe on me through their word. So we see a, a powerful tradition being established. Jesus came and manifested the Father in name, in word, in principle, in action. And he caused others to know God. And nobody can know the Father except through his Son, Jesus Christ. They are commissioned. They are empowered to pass the word along. Not in just some uh, informational way. They are here to give their very lives like he gave his life. To deliver a message with everything they've got. Because they would, they would use their lives. Their lives would be literally spent for this purpose. That others may know him. The word must be delivered with, with t total devotion. Nothing here that is just a processed package like, you know, some canned meat in a factory. No, this is something that is personally and powerfully passed on from one to another. And Jesus prayed for their sanctification. That means they're being set apart for this purpose. They're not going to be sidetracked off into other things. This will not be some little sideline. This will be everything to them. And if, and if they did not do this, we wouldn't be talking today. And so the importance of the word of God, the importance of the ministry of the word of God, and the really understanding of who is the word of God is what we must discuss. Now, therefore, we ask the question first, who is the word? If we want to minister with Jesus and not simply do things in his name, we must be in harmony with Christ. In harmony with his word. In harmony with the way he used his word. Now that's been the point. I, I feel a need. I, I actually reread all my sermons for the last eight weeks or something like that, just to say, am, am, I, am I actually getting something across? 
Am I actually on a train of thought? Because some of these sermons could just stand alone, be a, a sermon. The last three we preached, that could just be a package all of itself, from Philippians 2, 1 through 16. But, but is there this thread going through here? And just in case you haven't heard any of the other messages, or just in case you haven't known this was a big series, it's called Ministry with Jesus. And our point is we're not just doing things in His name We're not just trying to do things for him. We actually want to minister literally with him. Now, I I know physically you can't see him. But he promises his presence. And there's something about his word that's alive and powerful. And we want to uh, understand this and receive of this and participate in this. Then the ministry of the word is now with Jesus. And I'm going to back up with my battering ram and... Smash into it again, folks. We don't want to just do things. We can argue day and night what's the best methods and techniques for the gospel ministry. But to be so close to Jesus that we sense he's with us, guiding us, speaking through us, doing his work, that's what we need to have a a confident ministry. Confident, I say, because it's in the Lord. We have no confidence in the flesh, Paul says, but we have confidence in the Lord. Therefore, we rejoice in him. We celebrate in him. We, we partake of fellowship with him. And then our cups run over and we all get splattered. Because there's something very active and alive going on here. Okay, so Jesus is called the word of God. Right there in Revelation nineteen thirteen. And such a title denotes Christ's authority, his wisdom, his grace, his power. Um, We see it evidenced in the first chapter of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. And uh, he goes on to say, nothing was created without him. By him all things were created, nothing that was was, uh, uh, created except by him. And so this... Sovereign creator, and goes on to say also that he lights every man. Now that's a big, tall thing to try to explain. He lights every man. The, I dare say, you know, we can talk about the relative goodness of man, and man can't be saved by his own goodness. But if there is good in him, it came from Christ, who's the creator. He made us in, the, in his image. And sometimes people reflect aspects of their creator, And they do something good. They do something noble. And it doesn't mean they're a Christian. It just means that part of the creator is showing. And and we rejoice in that. Some people, it's greatly withdrawn. And they they are operating so much in the dark that it's it's a pain and a sorrow to have them in this world. And yet, the Lord Jesus can save either one. They both need to be saved. The really good person and the really bad person and all those ones in between. And you can fill in your own picture of you are here. You can decide, you and God, which one you are, where you're at on that scale. But from the very best to the very worst, they all have fallen short of the glory of God. They need a Savior, and Jesus can save any, any one of those. So he's the light of all men. Uh, I'm not going to take the time to read all the verses here. 
Uh, I'm going to ask you to look them up and check them out. I've double-checked them. I hope you can get some extra good out of reading these references. But also in John chapter 1, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, we have images of God in the minds of men. It's horrors. Of, of, of his uh, power and his judgment and, and condemnation, and it's lopsided. I'm all for teaching the fear of the Lord, folks. But we have passages that say God is holy, and that means he's separate from all of this, and he's so holy it would hurt to see him. It, it would, no man shall see God and live. If we saw him directly, it, it could kill us. But then we also have verses that say God is love. Now, we have to put it all together. Actually, it has to be put together for us by the Lord, through the word himself. But I'm here to tell you that uh, in John chapter 1, the law came by Moses. And there's nothing wrong with that. That was unmitigated truth to show what is right, what is wrong, why we are to understand our sin so that we also know, know our need to be saved from it. And that we need mercy. Moses did his job. Okay, he was faithful in all his house. I read in the book of Hebrews. But so is Jesus faithful in all his. And he's brought to us something that people could not experience before. It's the grace with the truth. Grace means gift. Grace means unmerited favor. Grace means that you not only are given an understanding of the truth, but you can now do something about it. For they who were under the law would go through the motions of the law and they could not be saved because they could not keep up. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now what was God doing? Is he just tormenting them? If they would listen, he's sending a message. Yes, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but you must be justified by the shedding of innocent blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And so God made a picture in the Old Testament of them sacrificing lambs and bullocks and, and whatnot. And they were repeated over and over because they didn't actually take away the sin in a permanent way. They were reminders. They were a, a, a temporary postponement of God's wrath. And to use Paul's language in Galatians 3, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The people of the old covenant were actually kept in protective custody. The law was reining them in so they didn't go stark crazy. If they in faith would follow the Lord, he was holding them in reserve, holding them in in safekeeping so that when Christ came and died for us, he died for the Old Testament saints as well as the New Testament saints. That's what it means in Romans 3 when it talks about the sins that are past. Not talking about your past sins. That, that your, all your sins are covered by his blood. But so are the ones done in the past in the old covenant. Just in case you wanted to know that. But here we see grace and truth. And of his fullness have we all received. You know, it's one thing to behold it. It's another thing to receive it. Of his fullness have we all received. John 1.15 and grace for grace. And, I, you know, I get carried away on this one because grace for grace means grace after grace. 
And if you want to really interpret it well, it's grace after grace after grace after grace after grace. Unending grace. Sufficiency for all our sins. And so here is our powerful, sovereign creator. Here is the one who has shed light on men. <coughs> here is the one who holds all men accountable. But he comes in this gracious way that we can receive the grace and more grace and more grace and more grace. His grace is sufficient for us. His grace is enough and more than enough. And then we get a picture at the end in the book of Revelation. That's where it says literally, his name is called the word of God. The passage I gave you in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, uh, also includes that he is called faithful and true. Everything about Jesus is he ministered faithfully for his Father and to us. He ministered to us in faithfulness to his Father. He kept the truth. He did not deviate. He obeyed the law as a man and then offered that as a, uh, an acceptable sacrifice to the Father for our sakes. He's been true to all of the word, and in order to be true to all the word, he also, also has to be a judge of those who refuse. And he comes in flaming fire to take vengeance. Uh, he's described as, as coming on a, on a horse, and his mouth is like a sword, and he devours his enemies. And this is a picture of Armageddon. And if you'll get the rest of the picture, we're on horses behind him, riding with him, not helping him. We're witnessing. We're attending. We're the honor guard. And I wanted to elaborate that just a little bit, because that picture, to me, is a fulfillment of something that was actually going on earlier. I'm, I'm, if I don't watch out, I'm going to go off-road here and start forgetting what I was putting in these notes. But, but I'm going to give you this hint that Jesus describes himself invisibly in this day and age as going forth and people hear the voice of the Son of God. And they that hear shall live. That's in John chapter 5. It, it will show up in a moment somewhere here. But when you and I preach the word... It is not us who is saving anybody. It's the Son of God. And in a sense, we're the honor guard. It is His word that goes forth. It is His word that gives life, that gives faith and repentance. And we attend. We attend. He wants to do this with us. That's a great honor. It's a great responsibility. Can you imagine saying, I'm too busy. I won't, I won't ride with the Lord going down to earth right now. No, I, I got something else I want to finish no, everybody on their horse. And that's what we should see today. Everybody on their horse, so to speak, in their saddle, doing this work with the Lord. And we can't do it without Him. Okay, so now the, the second question. What is our relationship with the Word? Who is the Word? I didn't give you a lecture on the inspiration of the Scriptures, though I would love to. Maybe I kind of did, but we pointed to the person. Jesus is the substance. He was here first and words came later as he inspired them in different writers. But he was with the Father before the foundation of the world, so he's the word. 
Now, what is our relationship with the word? And I have to first say that how we reverence the word of God is an indicator of how we reverence Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to take some time to read some of these. I've been just sort of quoting and partially quoting, but would, would you go with me to Colossians chapter 2? Catching some of the nuances here is kind of very important because we can be seduced and made captive by false teachers, by philosophers, by religious and irreligious people alike. And so this great warning comes, but it, it starts out with a nice exhortation. Colossians 2, starting with verse 6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now, how you received him was by faith. That's how you're going to walk in him, too, is by faith. You can't do this without keeping your eyes on the promises and the instructions of Scripture. They go together. You're to be rooted and built up in him. Which means, as you're reading your Bible, you need... I hate to borrow somebody else's phrase, but that that, um, purpose-driven thing... You, you, you need purpose-driven Bible study. Somebody already wrote a book with that title, but <clears throat> the fact is, you need to know why you're reading it. You need to know what you're looking for. Um, I made up a story one time that I'm out in my garage trying to root around, tearing things apart, and somebody walks by and says, well, uh, Alex, what are you doing? Oh, I'm looking for something. Oh, really? You want me to help? Sure, come on in. All right, what are we looking for? I don't know. If you find it, I'll know. That'll be it. But, but I, so how do you really seriously look for something when you don't know what you're looking for? And maybe somebody's garages are just that. But the fact is, I'm telling people, read your Bibles. Pray every day. I'm, study your Bibles. But what are we studying it for? A lot of the byproducts of Bible study, the secondary things we get, you know, there's doctrine, there's um, correction, uh, there's rules, there's ordinances, you know, there's history, there's biography. You, know, you, you benefit from those things. But the main thing is, the Bible's described in 1 John chapter 5, verse 10, as the record that God gave of His Son. You get a bunch of doctrinal and denominational things right, you don't know the Son of God... Well, that same place in 1 John 5 goes on to say, He that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. Can we make it any simpler? You can know lots of stuff and do a lot of things right, but if you don't actually have a living, intimate relationship with Christ, if you don't know why God accepts you, or if God accepts you and your works, if you don't know through Jesus, you're in awful trouble. Those guys in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in thy name, we've cast out demons, we've done many wonderful things in your name. And, but Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I never knew you. We need to know that we're known of God and we can't be known of God in this wonderful, intimate way unless it's through Jesus Christ. So you better be looking for Jesus. And that's true of how to become a Christian and how to also walk as a Christian. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Don't say, thanks Jesus for the head start. Now I'm going to join this denomination here and they're going to do the rest of it for me. 
They're, they're going to tell me what to do, what not to do, and, and anything else, they'll just do it and I can watch. No, Jesus didn't come to give us a head start. He's Alpha and Omega. You know what that means. That's like saying A through Z, he's everything. You start with him, you continue with him, you finish with him. And so it is. Beware. Beware, verse 8 says, Colossians 2.8, Beware lest any man spoil you or take you captive through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, which some will say the elementary teachings. And the whole idea is teachings, even from the Bible, that aren't complete. Oh, I can get you started with the Ten Commandments. Oh, I can throw in the, the, the golden rule, do unto others as thou as you would have them do unto you. You know, I can throw in all kinds of nice little epithets here and there. But you know what? If I don't get to the nitty-gritty about the cross and the death of the Son of God and his resurrection, this is going to make you a prisoner, a religious prisoner, of others who have sidestepped the powerful gospel of Christ using the very words. The same thing Israel did with the law. They took his words and tried to establish their own righteousness, Romans 10 says. Their own righteousness, not his. And they took all those do's and don'ts and said, what? oh, we're so good, we're, we're doing this, we're doing that. We got our sacrifices and our festivals. Ooh, it's so nice. And oh, those poor benighted people out there, they don't have a temple and they don't have this. They don't know nothing. They're uncircumcised. And God says, They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Now, King James says at the end of the law, but we don't mean terminate. We mean fulfillment. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And so Jesus says, you look at this and you conclude that by the works of the law, no man shall be justified. You look at this and you realize that those endless sacrifices and the endless line of priests is now all brought to a wonderful fulfillment, and now we have one offering by one mediator once for all. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Hebrews 10. Okay, so don't let anybody make you a prisoner. Take you captive with vain Traditions and philosophies, and whether it's religious or not, it's to follow after Christ. That's the last part there in verse 8. You must follow him. Start to finish, A to Z, Alpha Omega. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. I'm going to stop there because I need to. But we have to have the right relationship with Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And other people are trying to cheat, even using religion, even using the Bible, to get people away from that and doing something else. And other people can brag in their results and their followings. The same thing is reflected in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, I know that's Old Testament. But after all, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. When God was introducing the law, I should say reintroducing, Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. But there is something here that the Jewish people called the Shema. 
And it starts out in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Literally, it is the Lord our God is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. But we're not done here. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest down in thine house and when thou walk in the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And you, you can bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you'll write them upon the posts of your house and on your gates. If you love God with all you've got, you got to love his word. You've got to get bound to it. You've got to get involved with it. You, you've got to get it out there for others, but get it in there for yourselves and make sure your children know. And if you say, oh, I love God with all my heart and all my strength and all my might and all this, and, and say, well, I'm not telling anybody. There's something wrong. I'm not going to apply this and every day and read my Bible and have to do stuff. I'm, I don't want to stick out funny. But, but I, I, oh, yeah, I love God. And people today say, oh, how I love Jesus, but they, they don't hide his words in their heart. They don't tell anybody else. And that brings us to statements in the Gospel of John, verses, chapter 6, verse 63. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you... Oh, let me start back. I, I, miss, I missed a part. It is the spirit that quickens or makes alive. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And emphasize this. Jesus didn't say the words that I spoke. He said the words that I speak. Which is going to get us to that Hebrews 4 passage where the word is alive and powerful. Jesus is speaking today, folks. Is he able to speak through you? I pray he will speak through me. But he's alive, he's speaking, and he says the flesh profits nothing. You need Christ in you, speaking through you for this to become the real deal. Chapter uh, 8, verses 30 through 32. Can't, can't give you all the background story here, it would take too long. But Jesus has a group of Jews, and he's talking to them, and uh, he he says something very powerful, and it says, uh, many Jews believed on him. And then he turned to those who believed on him. And I don't know how they showed it, but somehow they showed it. So he turned to the ones who believed on him, and he said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And a little later on, he adds, if the Son of God make you free, you shall be free indeed. So it isn't just a, a nice, warm, fuzzy moment where we hear something, oh, I like that. I'll get a little plaque and put it on my, my end table, my mantle. I'll, I'll get a, a nice little plaque and mount it on the wall or something. It isn't about in, enjoying the words and believing a few words. It's the person of the word. You've got to continue in my word. Then you're really my disciples or, or followers. And when the truth has made you free, you'll also know it's the Son of God who made you free. Not some system of teaching, not some church or minister or denomination or whatever. It's Jesus. It's Jesus who makes us free. 
in, in John 14, 15, Jesus said very simply, if you love me, keep my commandments. Contradiction if you don't. Then there's Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the, one of the great commission statements. And we, we kind of sang some of it today earlier in church, but all power is given unto me. That is all authority. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That is, teach them the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. And when they are disciples, then you baptize them. He didn't say baptize all nations. He said make disciples from all nations. Then you baptize the disciples. And then you teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Commanded? Oh, wasn't that, isn't that an Old Testament word? No, it's a New Testament word too. There's over 600 commandments in the New Testament. Jesus says you take those people that became followers... You baptize them, you initiate them, you get them to publicly confess their faith, and then set them down to learning how to keep my words, to do what I say, and I am with you always, even to the end of the world, the end of the age. So how we reverence the Word of God is an indicator of how we reverence Jesus Christ. We need to have an intimate and lively relationship with Christ and His Word. Colossians 3.16, we were in Colossians 2, remember? Colossians 3.16, this is uh, the second layer. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. Let me say that correctly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And now I realize I, I, I can't quote it as good as I thought. I don't want to mess this up, so bear with me. As I turn a moment to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, the word of Christ is not just the first four Gospels. It's not the first four Gospels in the book of Acts. It's not a red-letter edition of the Bible and only read the red letters. The word of Christ is described here with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with melody in your heart to the Lord. We minister the scriptures. The psalms are especially called the word of Christ. A lot of people don't realize how much doctrine there is in the book of Psalms. It's as doctrinal as the book of Romans. Virtually every doctrine in the Bible is in the book of Psalms. That would take a while to explain, so I won't right now. But the fact is, Moses, uh, Jesus would tell the Jews, you say you follow Moses, but Moses wrote of me. And that would take another long lesson to explain how Moses was writing things pertaining to Christ. All of them were pertaining to Christ. And the, the Psalms in particular are musical books, poetry, prayers. And there are other poetry and prayers in the Bible, too, that you can use. But we are to minister these things one to another because they are the word of Christ. It needs to dwell in us richly and with all wisdom. That's the word I almost missed, and I didn't want to. The wisdom here is knowing how to properly use something. You know, uh, a guy could possibly take a course on repairing cars, and he could... um, read a Chilton's manual, if they still use those. It's all probably computer stuff now, but I'm old, and I still think this way. But you could have um, all kinds of schematics and things like that, and you could probably talk about it in theory, but if you've never put your hands in there and got in there, 
and how you, how you lug that wrench and how you avoid a busted knuckle, which you can't always. But getting things to actually work, it takes something beyond knowledge. It takes wisdom and understanding. And we can learn lots of verses and get lots of smiley faces and stars on our report card. But if we haven't done anything with it, we don't really understand yet. We don't have that wisdom. How's that go? Knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. And wisdom is knowing not to make a smoothie with a tomato. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) It's how some people handle stuff. And we'll find out who really understands and who really doesn't. But we need to have an intimate and lively relationship with Christ and his word. Hebrews 4. I've been hinting and edging this way. Hebrews 4, we're going to read verses 12 through 16. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful. King James means alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And that's, that's quite descriptive of a sword. If, if, if those soldiers ran through the, the footmen with that big claymore, they could literally lob off an arm. Big, heavy thing, and they, they could come down and, and take a limb off. Split a head. That's why you're supposed to have the helmet on, by the way, but... That's a powerful sword, but it goes now from the allegorical, metaphorical usage to something you can really relate to here. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, this is when I know I have a relationship with the Lord that's real. I'm reading the Bible, and all of a sudden, the Bible's reading me. I have tried sometimes to avoid a subject because I'm not submitting to the Lord. So I try to go somewhere in the Bible where he isn't going to talk about that so I can just enjoy my Bible and feel good about myself. And I'm amazed. He has embedded things in his word. He, I've, I've run here or there in the scriptures, and there it is again. I didn't know what was there. Check the ink. Is it wet? And he's reading my thoughts. He's letting me know. I already knew you were going to think this. I already knew you'd go here. I've got it ready. Now, when the Bible starts talking to you like that, this is, this is supernatural, yes. It isn't superstitious. I don't just take my Bible and shut my eyes and open up and put my finger on a place and just read it. I mean, I, should, I, I must say I have. <laughs> but, but that's not what I think is the method. You just systematically read the Bible. Sometimes pick it up and just read wherever you want. But God can guide and speak and you are getting a message that is personal. It, it's not for that person over there or that person over there. It's for you, and you know it's for you. I've actually seen myself quoted what I was just thinking previously in the Bible because somebody else has done the same thing, and God, God's Word is loaded like this. And it's, it's just amazing. But we're not done. That was Hebrews four, twelve. Now, 13... Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, what little grammar I understand, 
Pronouns need antecedents. In other words, you've got to have a proper name. That way, him is identified later. Or it. Whatever him or it may be, or them. You have to go back somewhere earlier and say, who is this? And I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I didn't find a name. Until I realized he's talking about, in verse 12, the word of God. Him is the word of God. And you and I, I don't want to scare you, but it's like we're totally buck naked in front of him. There's not a thing we can hide. It's all open to him. And he's the one with whom we have to do. In other words, he's the one we answer to. And since they're on that theme, now they bring up Jesus as our great high priest in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Now, aren't you glad the one who can see you buck naked is really trying to help you and he's your advocate and he's trying to minister to you? You know, he's not there to make fun of you or just ridicule you or make you feel bad. He's there to minister to you. Like that hymn said today, in my case, it said it twice, but he wants to, to uh, uh, burn off your dross and refine your gold. Okay, so this is our friend, our ally, our, the one who's ministering to us doing this. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly, without fear, that is, unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.12 will never be the same to me since I figured out what 13 was talking about. He is the word of God who is alive and powerful and understands my thoughts and and my actions and my words. and, And he knows my thoughts before I know them. And that's why we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And as we also sang earlier, I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Yes, he's working in us. He's working through us. He's working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. But it's him, the living word. If this book could become a man, it would be Jesus Christ here. And if Jesus had turned into a book in front of his disciples, it would have been this book. I'm not going to argue which translation. Just (laughs) bear with me. So the, the last question in this message is, what is our method of ministering the word? I know who the Word is. I know I need a very important, intimate, vital relationship with Him. Now, how do I minister Him? I'm not just talking about ideas and doctrines and, and truths with subpoints. I'm here to deliver Jesus Christ to other people. We're not just talking about Scripture. So we need to observe how Christ ministered the Word. We need to use the word to release him into the minds and hearts of others. Now, when Christ walked on the earth, he could expose the secrets of people's hearts and lives to them. Okay, um, 
What was that? Philip's brother said, how do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. (laughs) And the man says, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus says, is that all it takes to convince you? He came in with an aggravation, like no good thing can come out of Nazareth. He just says, I saw you over on the fig tree, way over there, before we met. Well, the woman at the well, go bring your husband. Lord, I don't have a husband. Oh, that's right. You've had five, and right now you're living with a man that is not your husband. Yep, you're telling the truth. And knocked her out. I think you're a prophet. Before he got done, she says, you are. You are the son of God. You are the Messiah. And she ran home and told everybody, see, there's a man out there who told me in all things ever I did. Is this not the Christ? Well, there was, um, there was Peter. Lord, I'd suffer for you. I'd go to prison for you. I'd even die for you. Oh, yeah, Peter? Before the day's over, you're going to deny me three times. The rooster will crow twice. You'll deny me three times. Right. But a little later, after Peter with cursing was denying that he knew the man and the rooster crowed that second time, it, it said, I don't know how far away they were. It says their eyes met. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. He had a very personal way of knowing that the Lord knew him. Now, you and I don't have that exact ability to tell people all these spectacular things. But here's what we can do. We can expose people to the word so that Christ can reveal his thoughts about their heart and life. Now, I've already read that Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 part. He already knows everything about everybody. So as you're ministering his word, he's inside talking. He's inside doing something about that. Confirming it. Now, I had really hesitated to bring this up because it it can cause controversy because some people have gone off on different beliefs about how they can minister in a spiritual and supernatural way. Let me just tell you what it does mean. I don't want to argue about the stuff it doesn't mean. But in uh, 1 Corinthians... Chapter 14. And I want to look at verses 24 and 25. I'm in the middle of one of those hot spots. I spent a lot of time about a year ago talking about these things about spiritual gifts. Let's talk about what it does mean. If you have other concerns... Maybe we can talk later. But in 1 Corinthians 14, 24, But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believes not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. And unfortunately, sometimes when people have taught erroneously, it makes people hide from a good verse that could be used. And we won't use it because we're scared of the controversy. Because some people think that they, can, they have a spiritual gift thing, say, well, let's see, last night you were, or a month ago you did this. And, and there's some people feel they can do that, and that, that's a little scary. 
I don't think Paul was talking about that. I think the word prophesy here, the plain meaning of the word prophesy is to tell forth the word of God. We have special prophets in Scripture that foretold things, but the majority of prophecy is telling forth things. And the plain reading here is that instead of everybody, you know, speaking in tongues and doing all this stuff, if they come in and they hear the word of God explained, then the secrets of their heart will be revealed to themselves and they'll say, God's in you of a truth. And it's because you handled the word of God in such a way that that Christ could go in there and do what he does and make it personal and connect. See, that's good enough for me. And we need to be praying whenever we minister the word that Christ is pleased with our delivery of it so that we don't throw in superficial, anecdotal things that distract so that he can clearly speak to somebody's heart. Because I'll tell you what it can be like. There was a man who worked a job, and he was a man that didn't talk a lot, but he was brave to stand for Christ. People knew he was a Christian, and he got picked on for it. And they would jeer him and ask questions and try to mock him, but all he would do is answer with one thing. It's appointed unto man once to die, after this the judgment. And whatever they said, he'd say the same thing. It's appointed unto man once to die, after this the judgment. And one of his worst antagonists was laying in bed one night in a cold sweat, not able to sleep, remembering those words over and over. And he finally threw the blankets back, rolled, rolled over, got on the floor on his knees and asked God to save him. Because a man just kept presenting the scriptures. It's a point unto man once to die. After this, the judgment. And Christ could use that. Christ made it personal. Christ rubbed it in. And he couldn't blame anybody else. Let's let the word of God do his work. Let's let Jesus speak through us and touch people's hearts. We need to expose people to an environment of scriptural thought in which Jesus can speak to them as he did here on earth. And like I said, it was John 5, 25. The time has come that the voice of the Son of God shall go forth and, and, and those that hear shall live. That's not talking about the resurrection. He discusses that in later verses. But when we preach the gospel, that's the voice of the Son of God going forth. Uh, Paul said to the Corinthians, I came not to you with wisdom of words, but I came to you in meekness and fear. And I wanted you to see the demonstration of the Spirit with power. It is that word of God, Paul told the Thessalonians, you received it not as the words of men, But the words of God, which effectually work in us that believe. Effectually means effectively, powerfully work in us who believe. So in Hebrews 12.2, Jesus is called the author and finisher of our faith. Now, some translations have offered different words. I found three translations that got it, I think, the best way. He's the author or the originator. He is the author or the founder of our faith. He's the finisher or perfecter of our faith. But the idea is this is something Jesus creates, faith in us, and he sees it through to perfection. 
He who has begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. So we see it's the work of Christ. And yet, and I ask you to join me in Romans chapter 10 as we close. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and verses 17. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? I move down to verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus could sovereignly save people. He could have sheep preach. He could have birds tweet and preach. Amazingly, he hasn't used the angels to preach, but he uses redeemed people who know what they're talking about because they've experienced the grace of God. They can speak humbly as peers with people who are sinners, not talking down to them, talking across to them, saying, yeah, that's me too. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus will give the faith. Jesus will perfect and complete the faith. But he wants us there with our beautiful feet, according to Romans 10, preaching the gospel of peace. If you know who the Word is, then you know that you need a relationship with Him, the Word. If you know who the Word is, you know that other people need the Lord too. And it is in the environment of the Word of God that Jesus will reveal Himself. Through the truth of the gospel, it will make people free. Heavenly Father, Please take these words and make them meaningful, powerful to us. Provoke us, Father, to get closer to you than we've ever been before. To cherish our relationship with you through the word. And to cherish him who is the living word. And that he lives in us, we give you thanks. And if there be someone here who does not have the living word in their life, then they're lost and they need to call upon you. And we pray that they might call today. And receive the free gift. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.